This week on Life and Faith. The way I responded to what happened to me was to get really busy making plans and not having what happened to me as defining me in any way. Secularism means we're not going to live in a theocracy. My primary focus is to make sure people are safe and then to de-escalate it as quickly as possible. I love discovering what words can do. Surely they want the same things as us. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Cynthia Bannum left her career as a lawyer to become a journalist, eventually working in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery in Canberra and also working as a foreign affairs and defence reporter. And she was loving that life and doing very well in it. She was also running marathons with her partner Michael and travelling a lot and living life to the full. In 2007, when reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald on the visit to Indonesia of the Australian Foreign Minister, she was on board a Garuda flight that crashed on landing at Yogyakarta Airport. 21 people were killed in the accident, including some of Cynthia's colleagues, journos, diplomats and federal police officers attached to the visit. Amazingly, Cynthia survived, but with terrible injuries, a broken back, very serious burns that became infected and subsequently she lost both her legs. She experienced a very long and painful road to recovery. In the years since, Cynthia has become an academic, doing a PhD and Masters in International Affairs. She's continued being a writer and also has become a mum. She was and is determined not to be defined by the accident. For many years, she didn't want to talk about it. But eventually, she wrote about her story beautifully in her memoir, A Certain Light, a memoir of family, loss and hope. And it was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Cynthia is a close friend of my wife and my friend too, and it's a great honour to have her on Life and Faith. Cynthia, so good to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for asking me, Simon. Now, working as a journalist after you'd been a lawyer was a dream come true for you. You describe it as a very happy kind of place for you. What did you love most about that job? I had wanted to write. That was the thing that sort of made me decide to leave law. I didn't expect to love journalism as much as I did because really I just knew that I wanted to write. So, you know, I'd loved English in high school and um, I'd done arts with my law and and the law had been the more practical thing and I think that's why I sort of went down that path but I really wanted to write and so after leaving law I thought what's what's a always thinking practically what's a practical way to sort of transition into into writing and then I ended up doing postgraduate studies in journalism and immediately it was just the right fit. I hadn't expected it to fit me so well. And what did I love about it? I I guess I loved the energy of the newsroom. I loved that I could pursue issues that really felt meaningful to me, which were things, you know, sometimes to do with law reform um, at that time and sort of legal matters, but then it sort of, you know, shifted into I suppose, human rights matters and refugee issues and that sort of thing. And so I just found that I was able 
to do what I couldn't do as a lawyer, which was just to pursue meaningful stories rather than just the cases that got sort of given to you. So there was that aspect. But then, as I say, that energy of the newsroom, of every day one of your stories would appear in the paper and so you would, you would, you know, you would see the results of all your work immediately. There was that immediacy to it, which I really loved. So I suppose it was that public interest element combined with being able to write and then the excitement of news and, and the newsroom that I loved, the pace, the pressure, the deadlines. I loved all of it. Now you've been really an adventurous person. You've um, travelled all the way through Africa. We've both actually, we share this, Cynthia. We both did the bungee jump at Victoria oh, Falls. <laughs> I know you did. crazy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, getting out and seeing the world was very important to you. Uh, you were able to sort of build that into, that was part of being a journalist for you too, wasn't it? That getting those two things. It was. And, and that's then what led me to go to Canberra because mm-hmm. I was told that, you know, if you wanted to work overseas in a foreign posting that, you know, you needed to go to Canberra. And then when I was there, I started studying international relations. And so, yeah, my interest kind of kept growing and and I became very interested in in international issues, you know. And so, yes, I was able to uh, sort of satisfy my, you know, desire to see the world and, you know, different places and understand different ways of, you know, of of living and being and, and that, and I could do all that um, through my work, which was, it, it did feel quite extraordinary and really lucky. Yeah, because you, you did a lot of travelling with backpacking and that sort of thing, but to be actually getting paid to go and do these stories must have been fun. Now, I have to mention this, you say it in your book, but you, and uh, I remember being really struck by it, that you've flown in a Black Hawk helicopter up and down the streets of the Green Zone in Baghdad with a flak jacket on while they were trying to not be shot at. Now, this is hardcore stuff. Yes. I don't remember you telling me anything about this. <laughs> So, I mean, that again was something unexpected in journalism that I didn't ever really think I was interested in sort of defence, but then that became um, really fascinating to me was was the whole, you know, following... It was a time when Australian troops were in East Timor and and Iraq and Afghanistan, so they were really busy. And the thing about defence that I found that was a bit different to international affairs was that it was often easier to find the human stories as well in defence because, you know, even though there was that real, like, deeply ingrained suspicion of journalists, um, the human stories were there to be found and, you know, and and sometimes that was through deployments and sort of the tragedies that um, also happened around that and, you know, getting to know families of defence personnel and the impact that certain events had on those left behind. I mean, that was the sort of thing that, you know, became a passion in a, in a way that I hadn't really expected to find. And so I am not the kind of character personality that could ever be in the Defence Forces. I just, I don't like being told what to do. I don't like to feel like I am under someone else's authority at all. I, I don't like towing a line, a government line. I couldn't do all that. But I did, this was the incredible thing about journalism was that it like, it gave you a licence to be able to go into all these amazing areas that I I never wanted to work in but I was fascinated by and allowed me to go and experience you know almost what those people were experiencing and then getting to write about it so it was it was like a license to experience life in a way and I think you know in defense you know in in sort of fighting you know in war zones and conflict and everything that that's when life is most precariously based almost and I think that's when 
in a way, that's when you feel most alive. I'm interested in your shift, that career shift, because you did a lot to become a lawyer. Family were pretty committed to you being a lawyer too. So having that point where you go, actually, I I know I need to do something different. Lots of people don't get to that or they end up staying in jobs and careers they wish they kind of had a way out of. I think I just wanted to live and and Mm. I felt like when I was a lawyer that I wasn't living. I felt like there was this part of me that was kind of being stifled and deadened almost and I had to break out of that in order to sort of feel alive and experience the world and you know the first place I went when I quit law was to Tibet and you don't feel any more alive than when you're staring up the face of Everest and you're at, you know, five and a half thousand metres and absolutely freezing and you're sick from altitude sickness and you're, you know, you're walking along these precarious sort of scree-covered, you know, mountainsides thinking that if you fall, you're, you're going to die. I'm not trying to be crazy or anything, but it was like it was the opposite of like what... What, what you had career, been Exactly. Yeah. It was so alive. And, and I think that a lot of people around me, including my family, did think that I was crazy to leave it behind. Absolutely. Your book recounts in, in all sorts of different ways that you experienced this terrible accident. And it's a very long, painful recovery. But I want to ask you about some of the key people in that period of your recovery. They're all very important in this, but your mum, first of all. I mean, it's a, maybe an obvious thing to say, but having your mum close by became so important. Yeah, especially in that early time when I was, um, you know, still in the burns unit. That's when your life just really, really shrinks down. And, um, you know, the only people that I wanted around me was really my mother. And I was, you know, I was really lucky to have Michael, who's, you know, my husband now. And I didn't really see many other people. I I found it, you know, even other members of my family, I, I, you know, they were, they were around, but the people that I just needed to be with me was, you know, my mum in the morning when I came out of the excruciating pain of the burns dressing changes and um, I was just in so much agony at that point having like stayed awake all night and, you know, having terrible visions and, you know, all sorts of things. And then she was the person who came in and she sort of like brought the sun in with her and kind of like just let me live through another day just having her sit with me and um you know she used to bring me like a cup of miso soup uh because I couldn't eat anything I mean I was I was having all that food through the nasal gastric tube and everything and I couldn't eat anyway and I just used to throw up all the time from the infections but she'd you know she'd bring it in and and she'd just come and she'd just sit with me and then you know I'd see my dad in the afternoon and and maybe you know a brother or something and then in in the night it would be Michael and so I suppose my mum was the one who where I just felt like a child and I just felt like I just was totally reduced and she was the only presence that could kind of, you know, nourish and nurture me and keep me going. But then in the evenings it was like that's when Michael came and that's when he, um, who is the most extraordinary person, that's when he allowed me to see a life, a future as an adult. And he used to talk about our lives together and, um, you know, what that would look like. And he gave me the hope to think that I would have a future and that I wasn't just going to be in this child state for the rest of my life. And, And so he brought with him this incredible promise and hope, you know, and he was talking about things that we hadn't talked about before the accident you know like having children and so you know I could I had something to believe in then and and a reason to keep going and he gave that to me. 
uh, he comes across, I mean, he, you know, I know this anyway, but in the book, even more acutely aware of how much of a role he plays there. And, and what's an incredibly beautiful story, actually. Um, Fiona Wood, the Burns specialist, also someone you came to rely on heavily. And even when you had to leave there, it's a bit of a wrench, isn't it, to say goodbye to someone who's been so key. Well, it was because I was really scared. I was really scared that I was going to die and I was really scared that the infection that took my legs was going to come back and, and kill me. And an infection did come back when I was in the burns unit and they had to really up my antibiotics big time. And um, having her there was like, you know, she had saved my life and I felt as if, if she was around me that I was going to live, that I was going to survive and so I sort of clung to that, you know, like a lifeline, like an umbilical cord it was, which then had to be cut when I had to leave the burns unit. And, and I found that really difficult. I was like, you know, how am I supposed to do this without you? And I went after three months in the burns unit, three months in rehabilitation hospital, and she was still around then, which was, you know, which was a comfort. But, you know, then having to leave Perth and having to leave her behind, I found extremely difficult and, and I know that this is, you know, obviously doctors are used to this, it's what they do. She saw her role as not only saving my life but then giving me as good a life as she could. Like that's very much I think Fiona's ethos, you know, it, it's quality of life for Burns patients. And and so once she had done that job, she let you know, let me go, but I was, you know, I wasn't ready <laughs> to go. be let go. Yeah. I was I just found it extremely difficult. A third factor here, some a love we both share, Cynthia. We sometimes text each other in the middle of games, but the Sydney Swans AFL team. Now, this is something you came sort of late to in your life, but that club became very significant for you, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the history with the Swans was that, you know, Michael's from Melbourne. I'm, I'm from Sydney originally, and, um, and he's really into – all sorts of sports in a very big way and I never was I was never sporty growing up and so I sort of thought um you know it was the early days of our courtship that I had to show some kind of interest in something <laughs> you know, he was interested my in. Wife, Michelle my wife as you, you know well she pretended to like the Manly Seagulls for a while but that didn't go. last but you, you've carried it on. Well as Michael says to me I I never do anything in a sort of a exactly I always take things to the extreme and so so I I became interested I I chose the Swans being from Sydney it seemed like an obvious thing and I and I enjoyed watching football which I can't say the same for cricket or golf and so I chose them as my team and then when I was um you know after the accident I was in hospital and one of Michael's friends down in Melbourne who worked for his newspaper got in touch with the club and sort of said oh you know this has happened to our friend is you know there's something you can do send a signed Guernsey and so they did the Swans sent a signed Guernsey but then um, they didn't stop there and um, there was a day um, when I was still in the Burns unit when Paul Ruse the coach at the time called Michael's phone so he obviously got hold of Michael's number and, and asked to speak to me but I was having a really a really bad bad day that day because you know I went to some pretty dark places in my head and um, Michael said I know Cynthia would love to talk to you um, can you try again in a couple of days and and he did and mm-hmm. I was on the way to get an MRI scan that day and I just remember I was so happy to you know to talk to him I found it really difficult to talk to to anyone really from my old life but I think there was something about Paul that he was kind of separate to my old life he 
you know, didn't really know anything about me and um, I found it, you know, much easier to talk to him than I, than I was able to talk to anybody from my yeah. work or my friends or, you know, who I just sort of shut out in those early really uh, sort of acute traumatic days. And, but I, I was just really at pains to try and tell him, like, you know, he was this big sports hero that I, you know, what I had been before that, you know, I, I said, Breezy, I used to run marathons um, and I can't do that anymore. And I was really, really upset. And, you know, and he said to me, but he said, but what can you do, Cynthia? And I said, well, I can swim. And he said, well, just focus on what you can do and don't think about what you can't do. Mm. And he has stayed in our lives ever since. Yeah, that was a sort of a lovely friendship that developed in that time. And he clearly saw something in you too, is obvious to me, that he saw the, your tenacity and your courage, which is the qualities he's trying to instill in his players. You got to know quite a lot of these guys and it's become a big part of your life, right? You were the number one ticket holder and you've been a loyal supporter. What was so special about that? To give you a bit of... Um, give you more of a reason to keep fighting and to keep battling on? Did you just feel an encouragement from them? What was, I'm sure it was mutual. There's a few different um, elements there. I think, you know, firstly, it was, it was a shared passion with Michael and it was something that I could do. If you talk about what I could still do. So on Friday nights in the hospital, we were allowed to uh, bring in um, pizza when I could eat again and the footy was on. You know, we were in Perth, so they, AFL they over there is AFL. very big. Yep. And, and we were able to watch on a Friday night, we would watch a game and, and have a pizza. And, and so football was firstly and foremost, I think it was this shared passion for Michael and I. The swans were like a silver lining to something really awful that I kind of, you know, never, never expected. So when they took this genuine concern that they had um, for me it was just really really unexpected and a beautiful thing I mean how could you not think that that's you know a wonderful thing it's like a these teams who are normally just so remote like you just watch them on television they wanted to be a part of my life and I was you know really I, I still am kind of shocked by that and so you know Rusey would do things like you know, he organised um, a lunch for my birthday and brought along three players, you know, Brett Kirk, Craig Bolton, Adam Goods, and we went down to Cottesloe and had a lunch. And, and that was, you know, one of the first times I was, I was in the rehab hospital then that I was allowed out. And, you know, it was really confronting because I'm there in the wheelchair with these Burns garments. I didn't look like anything like the active, healthy woman that I'd looked before. And so I've, I was completely... I just use the word reduced because that's just how I sort of, I just felt I was so, you know, a shadow of, of who I had been. But but I, I was there with a the lunch and, and they were a distraction. You know, they were a, a really fun distraction from something awful that was happening in my life. You know, and I, and I thought like if that's all that they ever did, that would have been a wonderful thing. But it kind of never stopped with the Swans. I, I got home and they asked me to be an ambassador for the club and they asked me to... Uh, be involved. We were living in Canberra to be in their, their advisory group for Canberra. Over the years, it's just kind of never stopped. And, and this is one of the incredible things about the Swans is that I never had to, um, they never asked me for anything. Mm. You know, they just gave. Mm. They, they didn't really ever expect anything in return. They just gave things to me, which were like these these experiences and these ways of feeling included in life when the injuries that I had suffered exclude you from so much. Yeah. Here I was being offered 
this chance that other people didn't have to be a part of something when in so many other areas of my life it had all been shut down to me. This is Life of Faith and I'm speaking with Cynthia Bannum. Cynthia spoke with me about the rebuilding of her life after a plane crash in 2007 where she suffered life-changing injuries. She has gone on to become a mum, complete a PhD in international relations and has written two books with a third on the way. You write about your recovery and how you were just longing to get back to, as you describe it, your ordinary run-of-the-mill life. I wonder... As you reflect on this, um, this many years later, what do we sometimes miss about ordinary life that we should be paying attention to? Oh, for me, it was um, something that I, I used to love doing with my mum when I was little. And then when, with Michael, when we got together, I loved going to the supermarket. I loved walking down the hill of where I lived in Campbell, in Canberra, to the local IGA with Michael on a Saturday morning and buying stuff to go home and make breakfast with. And I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. That's what I mean by the ordinary. Tell us about your, this is a really important part of your book, is understanding your family history. That was important to you as you made, were trying to make sense of your own life and struggles and, and pain that you were experiencing. Why did that matter so much, that bigger family picture? Um, I've always been really sort of fascinated with the Italian heritage. My mum was an immigrant from Italy. She came out when she was nine years old from Trieste and I had always really been um, fascinated with that side and with particularly I think when I was studying history in high school I became aware that my grandfather, her father, had been a prisoner of war in, in World War II after the Italians changed sides in the war and the Germans took all the Italian soldiers prisoner and and when and I just I was like 15 or something when I found out that history and just held that there I was really really interested but I you know life gets in the way and I never really did anything while he was still alive to try and find out more about what had happened to him other than it had been very traumatic for him that's all I knew and and then I became a journalist and um, went on a trip to Italy and um, uh, was talking to relatives about my grandfather who'd then passed away and they, you know, and they were telling me a story about his sister who had helped to keep him alive when he was uh, a prisoner of war in, in Germany and I became really interested in that and sort of, again, I sort of parked that as being a story that I wanted to go back to and, but there was never any time and, and it's, it's so often the way with um, the older generations the younger generations, you're, you're really interested, but you don't set aside the time to mm. go and hear the stories and record them. And I wish I had. And I would encourage anyone out there who's, you know, interested to do it before it's too late. But I, I left it too late. And then my, my grandmother passed away as well. When she passed away, I um, was kind of the only one who was interested in my grandfather's wallpapers. And so I sort of salvaged them. And it was amazing that they were still there. And I sort of kept them. But, you know, the accident had happened. And by then, uh, I was looking at doing a PhD, um, and so I, I put the papers away. And as I also put away all the cards and letters that people sent to me when I was in hospital, which were just too uh, traumatic for me to read, it just brought back too much trauma. I could never really 
engage with them at the time and um, that I kept them all, finished the PhD and it was then that I, not in any planned way, I happened to open the box of my grandfather's papers at the same time as I opened the box with the letters and started reading them and that's when the sort of the story came to me that, you know, maybe I could tell sort of my story along with my grandfather's story and, and the, um, the sort of elements that were in common, the synergies, I don't know if that's the word, between yeah. the two stories was uncovered, was revealed to me in the writing. And, and that's when I realised that I needed to talk to my mother too about her immigration experience, which had also been a deeply traumatic one for her. And then it just became clear to me that oh, there was like a theme here of, of these, you know, these lives where, you know, you're, you're going along um, happily thinking that this is always going to be like this and then something terrible happens and it, it sort of upends your, your mm -hmm. life and you have to get past it and start a new one. And, and I could see that there is this theme. And the, just the other thing that I'd say that as I was writing it became very clear to me was, was that the one thing that if you have been through trauma that, that is, is kind of consistent is that trauma is, a very, is very isolating Yes. And that isolation, whether it's from, you know, you can't talk about it, um, other people don't want to talk about it, uh, it cuts you off from your old life or whatever it is, that, that was a common factor there. Yes. And so I, I did find some kind of a comfort in knowing that uh, it made me feel less isolated to know that it was a common experience. Now, in your book, you, you wrote that before the accident you used to pray every day to god and you were you were thankful for a healthy body you used to you didn't take that for granted you used to thank god for being able to run and swim and so on your picture of god changes after that time and probably evolves over time doesn't it yeah but i think it always it always has i think my faith is not settled you know and um i mean my husband reminded me just last night in thinking about talking to you today that just before the accident, I had said to Michael, I need Jesus in my life. I want him in my life more than he currently is. And we had actually started going around looking for a church in Canberra and we didn't even care what the denomination was. We were looking at Catholics, Anglicans, whatever, yeah. just to find a place where we felt a sense of meaning in going along and attending Mass. I really wanted that. I, and, and I think part of it was because I had arrived at, probably I was at a good place in my life. Mm. And I thought, what am I missing? I'm, you know, this is what I'm missing. I have Michael, I have this amazing job, but I'm missing something. Yeah. And then that goes and happens. And then you just think, you know, what the hell? You know, like, what did I do wrong? Um, and this is an issue that I actually grapple with in the new book is something that is common to experiencing great loss and trauma is a sense that somehow you brought it on yourself right. that you deserved it and so you just think well what have I done that I'm being punished by God yeah, for okay. and so my faith it's sort of um it's a it's a very private thing and unsettled is probably the best way to describe it I sometimes go to church and it's a catholic church and and I feel this great sort of sense of comfort in the ritual of going to church. I don't necessarily 
listen to what is being said and I don't agree with um, most of it. I actually find a lot of the church's positions on issues of human rights really offensive to me and I don't accept them. But I have always felt with my faith that I can take what seems true and meaningful to me, which will be, um, you know, a lot of the times it's things Jesus talked about um, and his compassion and, um, and it'll be those sorts of things that I find really comforting and helpful to me to aspire to in my life. And so I'll sit there and I will, I will think about that and I will take great comfort in being there, feeling close to God. And something amazing that does happen to me when I do go to church and I'm sitting there, you know, by myself in the hard pew um, down the back, um, and the pew is very hard when you, you know, you're wearing prosthetic legs. But I, I see something that I don't see when I'm outside. And what I see, and it's the only time that I feel this way, uh, I'll be looking up at Jesus on the cross. And it's the only time that I will actually think, what happened to me gave me a wisdom and an empathy that I wouldn't have if I hadn't suffered in the way that I did. And even though I would never have asked for it, that the only way I can really understand it is to see that it's a gift. And it doesn't mean I want any other bad stuff to happen to me. I really don't. And I, but that's what I'm able to see when I go to church. Well, that's a very profound thing to say and to get to that point. I don't think many of us would even pretend to know what we would feel like having gone through what you've gone through. These days, Cynthia, we hear a lot of talk about resilience. There are things you have learned about this and even, even about human nature. I think your book where you're talking about and you're sort of linking your story to the people in your family and the difficulties they've had too you sort of you've learnt a lot about people in this period right you know always good things yeah um I suppose like the way I responded to what happened to me which I didn't look at in terms of resilience I just responded in the only way that I knew how was to get really busy making plans and not seeing myself as having what what happened to me as defining me in any way that advice about focus on what you can do that's what I did that's what Michael and I did Um, and people come along and will offer you a little um, helping hand along the way and you know you can take that so for example you know having studied at ANU some of the professors there came to me and said would you like to become a journalist in residence in the Department of International Relations and I wasn't able to do the sort of journalism that I wanted to do anymore and so I I I thought this was a really you know this was a very generous thoughtful thing and I went along with that and then I saw other students doing their PhDs and I thought well I can do that Mm -hmm. something I can do so I did it and along the way I found an amazing supervisor Professor Hilary Charlesworth who was this incredible woman to work for She's now um, a judge on the International Court of Justice and um, she was a great supporter of women and, you know, and her sort of attitude through the PhD was um, 
just get on with it. Like just stop reading and start writing. You know, she like she was like really she just wanted drafts. Give me drafts. And so she just she just kept me going. She just kept me churning it out. And um I absolutely loved working with her and the community that I found around her which was something completely different to what I had before um was extremely important to me and I threw myself into that. But it wasn't it that wasn't enough. I was simultaneously trying to start a family. And so mm. You know, Michael and I were going through the IVF process and, um, you know, which was a very consuming thing. I had a lot of different things going on at the same time. So keeping myself busy, not letting myself sort of drown in the, the tragedy of what had happened to me, thinking about, well, what can I do? What can we do? And, and so I guess that's how I responded. I've, I've just never been a person, and I think this was already there because why did I leave the law for journalism? It's like, you know, if something isn't working, if something doesn't feel good, doesn't make you feel like you're living a meaningful life, well, then change it. And that's how I've always lived basically ever since leaving high school. You know, I wouldn't say as a child that I had that wisdom, but I think once I'd, you know, once I left high school, um, then that's sort of how I became. It's not always a, a positive thing. I think Michael finds it, you know, deeply unsettling at times that I want to change things around all the time yeah. because that is my way of sort of dealing with disaffection or, or whatever. But it got me through my recovery and, um, and it enabled me to, you know, to build a life and an identity that wasn't tied to what had happened to me, which I just really did not want to be defined by the bad things that had happened to me. We've definitely managed to do that very successfully and powerfully, actually. Now, at the end of your book, you write that your life is a life reclaimed, really, through the love of Michael, your son, and your family. I got the sense that there was both huge loss, but also a defiant joy present in that story. I think absolutely in terms of how Michael and my relationship sort of was affected by it and and how we came out of that and my family you know to this day especially my father are just so deeply grateful to Michael because they think that he also saved my life Um, and I think he he did he uh, gave me a reason to keep going and um, and so I think when you have been you know, touched by love that is is that deep. Um, of course, there's a joy in that. It doesn't mean that there aren't really, really hard times. And, you know, and the fact that we were, you know, able to go on and, and have our son, it did feel like a miracle. And it felt like, you know, more than I ever thought I would have, even before the accident happened to me. I never knew if I would be that lucky. And I was. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks so much today to Cynthia Bannum for sharing some of her story with us. Her book, A Certain Light, a memoir of family loss and hope, is highly recommended. It's a wonderful book and it's published by Alan and Unwin. And keep an eye out for her next book, which is in the pipeline now. As always, thanks to our producer, the irrepressible Alan Douthwaite. Please do share this episode with people you think might appreciate it. I'm sure many will. Next week, 
There is a best practice. In fact, for 25 years, I was in charge of the course in the medical school, teaching students how to break bad news. And I didn't do a great job of it early on when I was a young consultant, but I learnt best practice. And I actually consider it a privilege now, Simon, to do that, because I know it can be done really badly. And it was done really badly to a friend of mine recently. Mm -hmm.